0: Are you glad you came to church this morning? Me too. I'm supposed to make this announcement because Wes forgot. (laughs) Door hangers. We're doing door hangers again on January 28th. Is that right? Thank you. January 28th. So we would encourage you to come out, just maybe take an hour walk with us. And all we do is we hang these on the doors. We do it very secretly so we don't disturb anybody. And we just need you to sign up in the back so we know how many to prepare for. And we do it on a, it's a Saturday, I believe. At what time, Wes? 9 o'clock. So come out with us. 9 to 10, you'll be done. It's a good It's a good walk and you might uh, put this on someone's door, and they might come to church get saved. Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be cool. Okay. How many of you have had the flu run through your house? Yeah, us too. Us too. Allie's the last man standing. I was. We were both the last men standing, peeps standing until Friday, and then I came down with it, so... I'm a little lethargic right this second, but yeah. Wow, isn't that fun? Isn't it fun? Aren't you looking forward to a day where the flu doesn't exist any longer? It is amazing how some little virus that you can't even see can take you down in a second, level you, no matter how big and bad you think you might be, right? But one day it'll... That's right, amen, from Edgar back there. But one day those things will be gone, Beloved. And when I experience those things, that's, that's what I think of. One day, no more. No more. Well, by the way, I see you back there, Jason. Just wanted to say hi. Welcome back. Don't leave without talking to me. Okay. This morning, we're going to be in Mark 13. And just to let you in a little bit on what I do on Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, I get up very early, and I review my message that I prepared earlier in the week for today. And usually what happens is I edit the message. I remove content because I usually have too much. And most of you know I usually still come with too much and go too long. So this morning I just had to make a decision. I had too much again. So I decided to just cut the thing in half and we're going to make it a two-parter. And we're not even going to get through the first point in its entirety this morning, okay? But what that means is, is that you have to come back next week. Most of you will, some of you won't, but I'm encouraging you all to do that so that you get the complete package of this message. And actually, we're going to be in Mark 13 for several weeks, and Mark 13 is one piece all together in this Gospel, so I would encourage you to stay consistent and faithful in your church attendance. And if for some reason you can't make it because the flu invades your home, you can always go on our website and listen to the sermon there, or you can also access it via the table. The table. By the way, that brings up another thing. I recently sent out a newsletter, an email newsletter. If you did not receive it, and this is just going to be an infrequent update of events going on at Summit, if you did not receive it, many of you have received it, but you haven't opened it yet. I know. Isn't that neat? With technology today, I know who has and has not opened the email that I have sent you. <laughs> I even know what time you open it. And some of you need to be in bed, honestly. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing at 1 a.m. Go to bed. But anyway, open, open it if you have it. Check your, maybe your spam boxes, junk emails. Maybe it's in there. But if you want to get on the list, you're not on the list, then just go to our website under the Contact tab, and down there you'll see a little link that says, "Join our mailing list." You can click there, type in your info, which is simply your email address and your first and last name, and that will log you into our system so that you make sure you don't miss any of the important updates in the future. All right, to our lesson. Mark 13, Mark 13. If you're not there, it's page 849 in those blue blue Bibles. You know, when I was, before we get into the text, well, not even when I was a kid, even now, I, I like Chinese food because I like the fortune cookies. You like the fortune cookies? You know, you open these things and they always are so positive and, and optimistic. Right? They say things like this A thrilling time is in your immediate future. Plan for many pleasures ahead. A pleasant surprise is in store for you. These are just the variable ones that I've received. and Be prepared to accept wondrous opportunities in the, in the days ahead. Good things are being said about you. Doesn't that feel good? You will spend old age in comfort and material wealth. Excellent. I don't even have to plan now. But I've always thought, wouldn't it be interesting to get a camera and to put in our own little messages inside of these cookies, ones that weren't so optimistic, like, you will spend old age in pain and poverty, and just see what the response would be. Be prepared to be rejected for that wondrous opportunity. Terrible things are being said about you right now. Plan for many miseries ahead. Well, if Jesus was writing these messages for these fortune cookies, they may not be. In fact, they indeed would not be so optimistic. And that's what we'll see in these first 13 verses and why I've titled the message, "Pessimistic, Pessimistic Prophecies. Pessimistic. So we're actually going to read the entire chapter. And the only reason I'm doing that, we're only going to cover the first 13 verses. T- we're not even going to cover the first 13 verses today, but we're going to look at them as a unit. But this chapter is a unit in itself. And it might be important for you, it is important for you to, to hear it, to understand it in that way. So beginning in verse 1, a lot of reading, just follow along with me. Beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings! Exclamation point. He's excited. Sounds great. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. Okay. Verse 3. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. Wonderful. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So those are the uh, pessimistic prophecies. Now, verse 14 for context, reading to the end of the chapter. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation it has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. Abomination of desolation, tribulation, son of man coming on the clouds. Well, it might help, before I read this to you, that to read Matthew's introduction to this section, Matthew 24, 3, there the questions that the disciples ask of Jesus are also recorded, but it, it might, it's more detailed and it might make more sense. When Jesus pronounces this judgment, this destruction of the temple, just like we read in Mark, the disciples come to him privately and they ask him some questions. In Matthew 24.3, I want to read that to you because then maybe you'll start to understand why Jesus responded the way he did. As he said on the Mount of Olives, that is Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be these things relating to the fact that He just told them about the destruction of the temple, then they add, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So there's, His response then is speaking to all of these things. So there is an eschatological theme here simply meaning that eschatology in Christian doctrine refers to the end of humanity, the end of time. What happens when everything is said and done? What happens at the end according to God's timetable? And so there's a lot of that stuff in this chapter, and that's why it tends to be a little confusing and a little mysterious. It is often referred to, chapter 13, is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse, because Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, just east of the temple, when he said these words, when he made this speech. So it's called the Olivet Discourse. And as I said, it happens to be one of the more confusing and difficult sections of Scripture to fully understand or make complete sense of. I just want to tell you that right up front. There are, in fact, a variety of views that are held by Christians and Bible scholars about what exactly Jesus is talking about here. Now, every position is not without its weaknesses. Every position. But some, in my opinion, are weaker than others. Instead of going through every possible view with you, I am simply going to present to you, based on my current studies, what I believe Jesus is actually communicating in chapter 13, and occasionally I will address a varying view. But I am acknowledging up front that there are strong differences of opinions among believers in regard to the correct meaning of Jesus' words in this particular section of God's Word. Okay? In fact, in John Mac- MacArthur's book, The Second Coming, I'll just show this to you right here, where he deals in detail... With this Olivet discourse, finding it not only in Mark 13, but also in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21, he says in his book, in his introduction, the second coming, he says, too many people in regard to this topic, in regard to eschatology, Too many people are pugnacious, he likes to use big words. That just simply means argumentative. They're argumentative about their views on the mysteries of biblical eschatology. Detailed prophetic calendars, dispensational charts, and debates about the order and arrangement of all the prophetic events, future events, do not warrant, he says, the amount of attention, the intensity of debate, or the level of intramural rancor, which just simply means resentment among Christians that they often generate between Christian brethren. Worse, far too many Christians actually do break fellowship with other Christians who differ with them on speculative and secondary eschatological issues. But our humility as we approach such mysterious, and many of them are, matters ought to be accompanied by charity for others, that's love, whose perspectives are different. Okay? So just realize that as we dive in. We're going to get into more of this in the coming weeks, And he, but he goes on to say that just because that's the case, just because eschatology may be difficult to grasp, it may be mysterious, there may be different acceptable opinions, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't comprehend or strive to comprehend all that God has revealed to us in His Word. Because Timothy says that all Scripture is profitable. It is profitable, including difficult texts. So we shouldn't shy away from them. We should dive in. But we need to do it with humility and realize we just don't know everything. We only know what God has revealed, and that's all we have. And sometimes he has chosen not to reveal everything. So this morning we're simply going to look at the first 13 verses of this chapter. And then we're going to pick it back up in verse 14 with this abomination of desolation. And try to work through that and figure out exactly what's going on. And as I go through the verse 13 verses... As I was saying, because they were asking Jesus about the end of the age, some people see the first 13 verses as specifically referring to something that is in the tribulation period in the future and isolated to that alone. I don't I don't believe that's the case, but some good men do believe that. Others believe that he was specifically referring to events that took place in the lives of the disciples and probably happened before AD 70. I don't necessarily agree with that either. And as we move through the text, hopefully you'll I'll be able to show you what I'm thinking about these first 13 verses and you'll you'll see it. But again, we'll only get through the first point, first half of the first point this morning. So, if you have your outline, you can open it up and it says we're going to consider based on these first 13 verses Jesus prophetic warnings given to his disciples. So that we might understand how to respond as Christians in these last days. And that might be a clue to where I'm going because I believe that these scriptures, these 13 verses, do have application to us. All right, the first one is warnings against deception, the second one is warnings about persecution. Now, our text begins, as we've looked at already, with Jesus and his disciples. They're leaving the temple, they're exiting. And all one of his disciples did was simply point out the magnificence of the temple. And it was a glorious building. And we see that in verse 1. But Jesus responded to the comment by prophesying its utter destruction. Verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Whoa! Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed or what? I'm just pointing out how beautiful and glorious this incredible building is, the temple of God. But Jesus responded in the way he did. So what's going on? Is he maybe one of these guys that's able to predict earthquakes and he knows one's coming and that's going to level the building? No, that's not at all. In fact, history records that the temple was utterly destroyed, exactly as Jesus described, torn down and leveled in A.D. 70 by the Roman army. This is real history. This happened. So, some 30 plus years after Christ came and died and was resurrected and ascended again to the Father, the building was wiped out. It's so bad, it was so destructive, without going into all the details, that they're not even sure exactly where the building set on the Temple Mount. There's still disagreement among scholars. And right now, as I've told you before, right, what sits there now is the Dome of the Mosque, which is a Muslim shrine. And eventually, the Jews want to build the temple there again, but there's discussions about where exactly they should even build it because they can't figure out the exact placement of it. That's how bad it was. What? Not, not one stone upon another. Okay, so it came about. Well, just as Jerusalem, and if you know your Old Testament history, just as Jerusalem was sacked and the first temple destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians who invaded and who were used by God as an instrument of His judgment upon Israel for their rebellion towards God. He brings in this foreign invader. They come in. They capture the city. They ultimately destroy the temple. All of this, according to God's word, was an act of God's judgment, using these, these Gentile invaders Well, so also Rome in A.D. 70 acted as a means of God's judgment against a rebellious Israel who now had even rejected God's very Son, Jesus, as the Christ. And again, they find themselves wiped out, destroyed, multitudes killed, and the temple completely obliterated. So that's the prophecy about the temple. Now, it's worth noting... Also here, the understanding and the expectations of Jesus' disciples at this point in history when they are asking these questions. What's going on in their minds? What are they thinking? Well, just prior to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, that's where He is now, a few days before He will be executed on a Roman cross, Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus' disciples still even though he had repeatedly told them, did not understand or grasp Jesus' predictions about his death. You can look at that for yourself in Luke 18:31 through 34. They didn't grasp it. They didn't understand it. He's telling them, I'm going to go there. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. They didn't, they didn't get it. It did not fit in to their idea of what the Messiah would do. Beyond that, we're told that they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, Luke 19:11. So these years are helpful for us because I don't have to guess what was going on in the disciples' minds, the text tells us. It tells us what they were thinking, what they were anticipating. Now, why would they suppose that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately? Well, we've talked about this before, but the great hope and expectation of the nation of Israel was that when the Messiah or Christ came or was revealed to the nation, that he would destroy Israel's enemies and reestablish the throne of David on earth, ruling over all the kingdoms of the world forever as their great and glorious King. Beyond that, peace, righteousness, and prosperity in this new kingdom would fill the world and glory and honor would be restored to this holy city, Jerusalem. Here's the Messiah. Here's the Christ. Yeah, He keeps babbling about this death thing. Not sure how that means. But all we know is The kingdom must be right here around the corner. It's going to be established because he's our king. When is he going to do it? When is he going to conquer our enemies? When is he going to push Rome out? When is he going to establish himself as the king in the throne of David? Now you have to remember, they never thought of or imagined two comings of Christ. Two comings of Christ, or the idea of a second coming, like we know and so readily talk about all the time, right? We know He came once, but we are looking for the second coming. We are anticipating a second coming. But in their mind, at that time in history, why in the world would the Messiah or Christ, who was going to come and establish His kingdom and destroy all of God's enemies and Israel's enemies... Why would He have to come twice? So that is helpful to understand when we consider the disciples' questions regarding Jesus' prophecy about the coming destruction of Israel's temple. And again, I want to read from Matthew 24, 3 because I think it captures better their questions versus our text in Mark. It says, As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? When will, when will the temple be destroyed? And, and what will be the sign of, of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, based on what I just said and based on what we know, when they say your coming, they're not talking about a second coming. I mean, Maybe that's obvious for all of you, but I want to make it very clear. So when they think you're coming, they're not talking about him dying, resurrecting, ascending, And coming back. They didn't see any of that. Even after he died, they were confused. They did not understand what was going on. They thought, well, that's that. so when they say you're coming, this is a reference to his coming in triumph as Israel's Messiah. His ascendancy to the throne. His... Revealing himself and establishing himself as the king. As the rightful heir to the throne of David. And taking over and destroying Israel's enemies. And establishing all of the promises that are related to and associated with this kingdom rule. That's what they're saying. Second, that's what they're thinking. Second, it appears that they assumed that the destruction of the temple was somehow lumped in with the end of the age and the establishment of the new age with the messianic kingdom that the Old Testament prophets spoke much about. Now let me, let me help you with this. One writer says, there can be little doubt but that the disciples thought of the destruction of the temple as just one of the events accompanying the end of the age and the coming of the eschatological kingdom of God. That just means the kingdom of God that would come in the end of humans' history. The final kingdom. God's kingdom on earth. So they they must have thought this was lumped together. One writer says, having only the perspective of Old Testament prophecy, and he refers to Zechariah 14, and we're going to look at that in a second, the disciples saw no long interval or period of time between the temple's destruction and the end-time events climaxing in the coming of the Son of Man, or the Messiah, or the Christ, the King. They assumed that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple were some of the events at the end of the present age, and that these events would inaugurate or officially or formally initiate or put into operation, that's all inaugurate means, They would inaugurate the Messianic kingdom. They would kick it off formally. They wanted to know when this would happen and what visible sign would indicate that fulfillment was about to take place. Remember, they thought that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Another writer says, His prophecy of the destruction of the temple naturally led them to think of Zechariah 14. Okay, let's turn to Zechariah 14. Page 799 in those blue church Bibles. Turn back to the left a little bit. In your own Bible. It's one of the minor prophets. Zechariah 14. Just before the New Testament starts. Let me read you just the first 11 verses of Zechariah 14. Now, I'll tell you right now before we read it, Zechariah 14 is a prophecy that has not come to pass yet. I'll show you that in a second. It is a prophecy about a coming day of the Lord, but there is no doubt that the disciples would have been familiar with this text. And it is possible because they were familiar with this text that when Jesus made this announcement about the destruction of the temple, they just thought this must be included in the events of Zechariah 14. So let's read it beginning in verse 1, follow on Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah." Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but in evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimen south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. In security. I know that's a lot there. We're not gonna look at that. I just wanted to show you what they might be talking about. There's this utter destruction. The military armies, the nations come against Jerusalem. All kinds of chaos and havoc breaks loose. But the Lord comes mightily and fights against these enemies, establishes himself as king, and ultimately the text says Jerusalem shall dwell in in security after this battle. Even though the city is taken and the houses are plundered. But ultimately the Lord rescues them from it all and establishes His kingship. So it's very possible, most likely, that they're just putting this all together. They're doing the best they can. That Jesus announces the destruction of the temple and they're just thinking, this must have something to do with the end events. And this will usher in the great kingdom that we've been waiting for. So, would you tell us what are the signs that we can look for so that we know this is going to take place? But, we know something they didn't know. And Jesus' response appears to me to anticipate what we already know, which is an undefined period of time between His first coming and His second coming. Which again, at this point, the disciples still don't get it. They don't know the man is going to die and be crucified in a few days. They don't get it, according to God's Word. This period of time, in between the first and second coming, according to Jesus, according to the Olivet Discourse, would be marked by troubles, real troubles, beloved, of various kinds. And eventually it will escalate into a unique and horrific stage in history called the tribulation. The tribulation. A time of tribulation, as Mark 13, 19 refers to, has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. But in the interim before the escalation of all of these things, Jesus warns his disciples about things that that are going to happen, that are going to take place, and I believe, as I said before, are applicable to us today. So when I read verses 3-13 through about these warnings, I see them as descriptive of present history, leading up to, an escalated time and intensity during the period that we refer to in eschatology as the tribulation on earth. You could also refer to this time, beloved, as the last days. These days are time period before Jesus' second coming and the end of the age. See, when I say we're living in the last days, that's exactly what I mean. It is the time period before the first coming and the second coming, before the end of the age in the consummation of all things and the tribulation period that will take place on this earth. So, wow, that was a lot, huh? That was a lot, and there's so much more. But don't worry, we'll kind of get through it together. So here, if you just understand that, I believe this is describing current history. The first warnings then, is warnings against deception. Warnings against deception. Remember, These things will increase in intensity and find their fullest fulfillment in that time period of the tribulation on earth, which we'll get to all that, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. So let's look back at the text now, Mark 13, and see the first warning, which is this warning about false Christ, false Christ. Mark 13, verse 5. Now, if this is about present history, and I believe it is, then that means we need to listen. We need to hear it. We need to understand it. We need to not just blow it off. Well, that seems a little confusing. I'm not sure I get it, so I'll just set it aside. This is a warning. Do you, are we in the habit of ignoring warning signs, typically? If we are, then we do it to our own demise, right? Destruction. Don't touch. Highly electrical. I don't have to read that. It's a warning. Okay, well, this is the Lord of the universe, your sovereign Creator, your Savior, and here He gives a warning. I think we would do well to heed it, to hear it. Okay, Mark 13, verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See... That no one leads you astray. So this is how he answers them. They're saying, "Show, tell us the signs. Listen, guys. They have no idea. They don't even know. They still think this guy, they think Jesus Christ is going to set up the kingdom any minute now. So this is how he's having to respond to them. Listen. See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. Let's look at Matthew. You don't have to go there. Just look up on the screen. Matthew 24, 5, in that gospel, where this is also recorded, the Olivet Discourse, this is how it is read there. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Okay, a little more information. And they will lead many astray. About Luke 21, 8. And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Time for what? I'm for the kingdom. It's here. I'm the Messiah. Follow me and I'll take you to the promised land. But Jesus says, do not go after them. So while the disciples of Jesus Christ, believers, wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish the messianic kingdom or the kingdom of God on earth, Jesus warns that there will be Many, right? Not one, not a few, but many deceivers who come and claim to be the Christ. And as a result, beloved, not one, not a few, but many, many will be led astray, away from the truth and towards their own destruction. Now, just as Jesus prophesied, the pages of history are filled with many deceivers. And sadly, just as Jesus prophesied, many followers. How is that possible? Are people really deceived to believe that another man is actually the Christ? Yes, Yes, here's a few from our recent history just to let you know this is a reality that even goes on today and has been going on since Christ said it would happen. How about Jim Jones? Some of you older people. I don't mean that in a bad way at all. (laughs) Some of you know Jim Jones. Some of you may have heard about him. Some of you have no idea who this guy is. He died in 1978. He claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus. Okay? Well, come on, he's nuts. Well, okay, maybe so, but he had a following. And he organized a mass murder-suicide on November 18th in 1978. That included 909 of his followers, and over 300 of them were children. One source says this was the single, get this, just listen to this, this was the single greatest loss of American civilian life, non-military, in a non-natural disaster until the events of 9-11. That's pretty significant. This guy claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, the reincarnation of Jesus, and people followed after him to their own death and destruction. How about another one? Maybe you have, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. This guy, as far as I know, is still alive. Sun Young Moon. Have you ever heard that name? He was born in 1920. He is a leader and founder of the Worldwide Unification Church. Worldwide Unification Church with an estimated membership of several hundred thousand to possibly a few million. It's got quite a following. With most of those people living in South Korea in Japan. You know, let me just say something. Japan, a very significant, technologically advanced community, right? They must be smart. But they're still following this guy. What do you think it? You think it's smartness or not smartness that determines whether or not someone goes after deceivers? It can't be. These people are brilliant. But they're deceived. He also has a small following in the U.S. Moon has claimed, and it is generally believed by unification church members, that he is the Messiah and second coming of Christ. And is fulfilling Jesus' unfinished mission. Beloved, this is right now. You understand? In our time period, these kind of things are being thought and believed. So I I wanted to just look at something that they some of the stuff that he taught. So here's what he teaches regarding the second coming or eschatology. Just listen. The second coming of Christ will occur in our age in age much like that of the first advent, the first time Christ came, Christ will come as before, as a man in the flesh, i.e. Sun, young moon, and he will establish a family through marriage to his bride, a woman in the flesh, his wife, and they will become the true parents of all mankind. Through our accepting the true parents, the second coming of Christ, obeying them and following them, our original sin will be eliminated and we will eventually become perfect. True families fulfilling God's ideal will be begun and the kingdom of God will be established both on earth and in heaven. That day is now at hand. I added all the emphasis. I mean, it's not there. I just wanted to give you a little something, keep you awake. Okay, so, oh my... Wow! People have bought into this, right? How? How does that happen? How are people deceived? Well, I found this very, very just enlightening to me because he has a section under what they believe about the Bible. This is what he says. By the way, before I, before I read this, do you realize that the only thing we have is this Bible? Honestly. This is what the church is built on. This is how I come to know Jesus Christ and the truths about Him. This is how I come to know saving faith. This is how I come to know what will come to pass. Get rid of this. Challenge this. Corrupt this. It's over. This is it. So if that's the case, do you think it's important that we know this thing? That we teach this thing? That we learn this thing, meditate upon this thing, memorize this thing. You know, I don't know, beloved, I, yesterday, I'm in a mood right now. Yesterday, I know there were big football games on. Okay? Man, and I hear men talk about football games. You know, I've said this before, with such passion, <laughs> such intensity and emotion and devotion... So much so that they, they'd have to run out and make sure they know the score regardless of what's going on. Get the latest updates. Hey, uh, football's great. Huh? No amens because you're all scared right now. No, football's great. Come on. <laughs> Football is a great sport. You can learn a lot from that game. No amens, guys. Come on. But listen. If, if men, if men would be just A quarter of passionate. Just take a quarter of that and apply it to the one thing that really matters. Huh. Can you imagine? Ray, I got to show you something, man. I got to show you something. Ray's like, I got to show you something. Something I read. Something. Can you imagine if we, that's how we talk about, hey, have you heard about the late? That's how we talk about football games, right? That's how we discuss football games. That's how we should discuss the Word of God even more so. Please, come on now. So don't feel guilt-tripped. Just realize, baby, this is it. This is our treasure. Anyway, here we are, back to the Bible. The Old and New Testament Scriptures, this is what he wrote, are the record of God's progressive revelation to mankind. Yes, they are. Listen to this. This is what... This is how deceivers are so good. If they just came out and and just told you one lie after another, you'd be like, that's a big fat lie. They never do that. They tell you some truth and they stick the lie in there and it starts to get a little confusing. So, okay, the purpose of the Bible is to bring us to Christ and to reveal God's heart. Okay. Truth is unique, eternal, and unchanging. So any new message from God will be in conformity with the Bible and will illuminate it more deeply. Stop right there. Not you walking out, but just stop stop, stop right here. They look like they had to go somewhere fast. So He says, listen, truth is unique, eternal, unchanging, so any new message from God, what are you talking about new message from God? What are you talking about new message from God? So, so he's setting us up now. That means that God's not done speaking. He's not done speaking. This is not it. We can still continue to receive new messages from God. Now, he says, he covers himself by saying, well, when we do, namely me, Sun Yung Moon, it will need to be in conformity with the Bible Means align with it, not go against it. But then he says, and it will illuminate it more deeply. Oh, there it is, right there. When I get this new truth, I'm going to show you what the Word of God really means. It'll shine a light that, you, you know, the second someone says, I know you've never heard this before in your entire life as a Christian, but I'm going to show you something so incredible. You, you'll never get there on your own. You'd only get there by listening to me. Run. Run as fast as you can. And then he says, yet in these last days, new truth must come from God in order that mankind be able to accomplish what is yet undone. That's it, beloved. This new truth. That's how this guy has convinced possibly millions that he has this new truth about Christ and the second coming, and the end of days. And He has the secret message that none of you could possibly understand without without Him. But you know what? If the people knew what Jesus had said about false Christ who would come and do this exact thing, maybe... Maybe they would say, wait a minute, this sounds very familiar to something I read in the Olivet Discourse. Didn't Jesus warn us that before he came again, there would be many deceivers claiming to be Christ, and they would lead many people astray? And then maybe they would take this guy and strap him up with tape and put him in a dark room. Now, that's not legal. You know that. You can't do that. Just using hyperbole here. It's a figure of speech. Because he's leading people astray, beloved, and there's many like him to their destruction. You know what? Spiritual or religious deception has its best shot of success when people are unfamiliar with or ignorant about God's Word. Period. It leaves them wide open to being led astray. And Jesus warned these kind of men would come, but his words are tragically unknown by too many. That's where we're going to end today, beloved. Next week we're going to look at false signs. False Christ, false signs. Hopefully that will spark your interest. You'll want to come back. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for for Your Word. I I just pray, Father, that we would be devoted to it. That, Father, You would increase our love, our devotion to it. That we would honor it for what it is. That we would really get into it. That we would spend time in it. That we would read it as... As we've suggested here, even just a course of reading through your word at least once a year to familiarize ourselves with all the richness of it. All 66 books contained in the Old and New Testament, words that you have given to us because you wanted us to have them. And, and yet, Father, we are so distracted and we neglect the very thing that we need desperately to live for you and to avoid destruction, tragedy, calamity. Father, help us. Just help us reprioritize, refocus, rethink about the importance and the necessity of this very book that many of us have multiple copies of in our home, but they never move from their shelf. Father, not that people would feel guilty okay, yeah, read the Bible, read the Bible, but that they would see the significance of it, real significance as Jesus gave this warning that has application to us this very day. That, Father, we would see these things and share these things so that when our friends and family and neighbors are tempted to be caught up by these false Christ and these deceivers in all their forms and shades, that we would be able to warn them and point them to the very Word of God where Jesus predicted these exact things would happen prior to His coming. That we would show them our source of authority to be that very Word, so that they might rely on it too and know the way of salvation. Father God, help us. Help us to be Your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.